So over the last several months, as I preached through the book of Ephesians, I've told you quite a bit about my story, about how in the last 10 and a half years, God weaved together this story in my family of taking us from Grace and from Dallas to Oklahoma to Wyoming and finally back here to Dallas and back to Grace. I've told you about how Han and I lived in that two-bedroom apartment near North Park Mall. I told you about how we attended church here at Grace. I told you about my weight gain plan that consisted of root beer floats. I told you how our first daughter, Chloe, was born at Presby, Dallas, and how her heart condition is really what propelled me into pastoral ministry rather than academic ministry, and how God really used her to take us to Oklahoma, to Wyoming, and finally back here to Grace. You know all of that story. But there's another piece of that story that you don't know, because I didn't know until just about a week and a half ago. When Han and I found out that we were coming back to Dallas and specifically coming back to Grace, we were in awe at this story of God and how he finally brought us back here and how our final child would be born at the same hospital, the same city, at the same church as our first daughter, Chloe. We thought that that was an incredible story, an amazing story, but in fact, it gets even better than that. Because on Tuesday, November 16th, our daughter Abigail was born at Presby, Dallas. The same hospital, same city, we're at the same church as was the case 10 and a half years ago. Here's a picture of Abigail. And so Abigail was born about a week and a half ago, but there's a part of the story that we didn't know because not only was Abigail born here in Dallas at Presby, Dallas, while we're here at Grace, but in God's amazing story, the labor and delivery nurse that we had 10 and a half years ago was the same labor and delivery nurse uh, that we had with Abigail. And Han and I just paused at some point and we're just in awe at this story that God had written. I mean, what are the chances, 10 and a half years later, moving from Texas to Oklahoma to Wyoming and back again, that it'd be the same labor and delivery nurse? We were amazed at that. But then the story got even better than that. Because 10 and a half years ago when Chloe was born at Presby, Dallas, I had the great idea of putting all my kids' footprints in a Bible. And so 10 and a half years ago, on top of Psalm 139, I had Chloe's footprint stamped in this Bible. And then Clara's footprint was stamped in this Bible when she was born in Oklahoma. Judah's footprint was stamped in this Bible when he was born in Wyoming. And then a week and a half ago, Abigail's footprint was stamped in this Bible here in Dallas. Psalm 139, of course, is the famous psalm, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What's amazing about this is when I asked the nurse in the mother and baby unit to stamp this footprint in the Bible, she interrupted me and said, I remember you. I was the nurse who stamped the footprint in 10 years ago. So both nurses in labor and delivery and in mother baby involved in Chloe's birth 10 years ago were involved in Abigail's birth a week and a half ago. Uh, Psalm 139 continues and says, in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. In other words, every day of our life, every footprint along the way is ordained by God. And God had been writing this story 
of taking us from Dallas to Oklahoma and finally back here to Dallas and at Grace. And he was writing this story, but to be honest with you, there were many days in the last 10 and a half years um, when I did not know what God was doing. There were times in the last 10 and a half years where I wasn't quite so sure that God had a plan. (laughs) There were times in the last 10 and a half years when times got tough and I lost hope. But hope is the theme that we begin with in this season of Advent. And for Christians around the world, Advent is a time when we are invited to get caught up into the greatest story ever written. A story written before the foundation of the world where God would send his son to bring hope to this world. To bring hope to this world that we have broken. And to begin this season of Advent together, I want you to open your Bible up with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we introduce this series on Advent with this theme of hope. And as you're opening up your Bible to 1 Peter, uh, let's first talk about what hope is and what hope is not. Because in common vernacular today, we throw this word hope around. And unfortunately, often when we use the word hope, we use it really as though it's wishful thinking. For example, all last week, I was saying over and over again, I hope that Oklahoma State beats OU in the Bedlam game. And that was wishful thinking. I had no basis for that belief, and as an Oklahoma State fan, I knew that anything can happen, and it almost did. But thankfully, my wishful thinking became a reality yesterday as Oklahoma State beat OU. But my wishful thinking was so bad that last night I didn't even watch the game. I knew I couldn't handle either the disappointment or the celebration, whatever the outcome was. So I didn't even watch the game until, and I didn't know the outcome until Betsy Edmondson texted me and said, congratulations. That's worldly hope. That's wishful thinking. But biblical hope is an expectation, it's a certainty because we know how the story ends. To use this analogy, real hope would be like me watching the game today, knowing the outcome of the game and when I feel that anxiety and that concern, reminding myself of the final score. Biblical hope is based in the character of God, it's based in the faithfulness of God, it's based in the promises of God. Know how the story ends because of God's promises. That's going to be number three on your outline. And because of God's promises, it gives us a future hope. That's number one on your outline. And because of that hope, which is based on the promise of God, it enables us to endure the trials of today. That's number two on your outline. But let's take it in order. Number one first, let's see the foundation that Peter lays out here of our future hope, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Let me read these verses for you. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, 
reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here Peter really begins the argument of his book by putting on display this future hope that is yours and mine because of who Jesus is and what he has done because of who God is and because of what he has done. Notice he begins verse three, blessed be or praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He specifically mentions there, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Notice that this is all rooted in the great mercy of God. We don't deserve it. In fact, Peter goes on to say he caused us to be born again. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. There's nothing we bring to this equation other than our own sinfulness. But God is the one who takes the initiative, and according to his great mercy, he causes us to be born again to a living hope, notice, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here the hope that Peter lays out here is a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a sure, certain, real hope. In other words, it's not wishful thinking. But it's certain. It's rooted in the power of God, in the resurrection of Christ. Notice in verse 4, he goes on to describe this hope, this salvation that has been given to us. He says to obtain an inheritance which is Notice this, imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. As we move through these verses, I want you to notice all of the strong words that Peter uses to describe this salvation, this hope, this certainty we have in Jesus. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus. It's this inheritance, three words he describes this inheritance. It's imperishable, it's undefiable, and it's unfading. There's nothing, in other words, that can take this away. No trials in our life, however bad, should call into question the eternal security we have because of Christ. Notice Peter continues and he says this inheritance is reserved or kept watch on by God in heaven for you. Continuing this idea that our inheritance, our salvation, this hope that we have is secure. And he builds on this even more in verse five. He continues and says, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter describes this hope, this salvation, and you as being protected by nothing less than God's power. The word for protected here is a military term. It describes um, the security around a city. And God's power is protecting you. I mean, what greater hope could there be for us today as we wait the ultimate redemption we will one day have in Christ? What greater hope could be given than the knowledge that God's power is protecting us as we wait through this fallen world and in this life filled with trial? This really is the basis of our hope. Notice just how emphatically over and over again Peter lays out the security of our salvation, that we're born again to a living hope. Let me pause right here and say, um, 
for you in this room, for those watching online, if you don't know this type of security, if you don't know for sure that your eternal destiny is secure because of what Jesus is, you bring nothing to the table. You don't cause yourself to be born again. You don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't try to do more good than bad. It's simply by faith alone in Christ alone. If you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I want to give you the opportunity right here, right now to do just that. And you can leave here knowing that this is truly how secure you are because of him. Peter offers here a living hope to his audience, to those who are suffering. And they are suffering. The Roman philosopher Cicero said that hope uh, what he said, while there is life, there is hope. While there is life, there is hope. Uh, many preachers have said you can live 40 days without food, eight days without water, four minutes without air, but only a few seconds without hope. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says that hope is a continual looking forward to the eternal world. Hope is a continual looking forward to the eternal world. The title for our sermon this morning is While We Wait, We Have Hope. And this is the great reminder for us in this passage that while we await ultimately um, the rapture and then the second coming of Jesus, we are people who should be filled with hope. And as we wait, as we read the headlines, we see that we live in a broken world. And it's to that that we turn our attention as we look at number two on your outline. Let me read for you 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Notice what Peter says here. He says, in this, this hope, this security, this salvation, in this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Again, Peter, his audience, the people he's writing to, they're people who are undergoing persecution and suffering and trials and hardship. They're being um, persecuted because of their faith. But notice what Peter is doing here in these verses. He's encouraging them to take their eyes off of their circumstances, to take their eyes off of the problem and to instead remind themselves of this grand story that God is writing. The story in which they are privileged to participate. The story of God's salvation that he's bringing to the world. Though trials cause temporary grief and it's real grief, those trials can't diminish the joy that's rooted in knowing the God of our salvation. So Peter tells his audience, notice again verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice. How is it possible that we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Jeff Sherwood talked about this a little bit last week. 
Well, notice what he says in verse seven. Peter says in verse seven, he reminds us of that second advent. Remember, advent is a time of both looking backward to the first advent of Jesus, but it's also a time of looking ahead to the future. And in verse seven, Peter reminds us, he says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word for proof here, by the way, means um, really to see what is truly there. It describes the process of refining. Years ago, I remember a wise man said, challenges don't change your priorities. Challenges reveal your priorities. That was Andy Wildman, by the way. I don't know if you remember saying that. (laughs) But it's very true. The process of refining our faith, challenges, trials, persecution, suffering, it doesn't change our priorities. It reveals our true priorities. It shows what we really believe. That's the idea that Peter's getting at here. Notice what Peter says that as we go through these trials and tribulations, we have this, the proof of our faith and that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, or you could say the second advent of Jesus Christ. Listen, for each and every one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, your driving passion each and every day is right there in that verse. Uh, For me personally, for me as your pastor, my goal is to help you, to equip you so that when you stand before your Savior, you might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That your faith, that your life, though passed through fire, would be found to result in praise and glory and honor when you stand before him. Finally, I want you to see verses eight and nine. Peter continues and he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Even in the midst of suffering, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. These verses right here are really why I picked this passage on this first week of Advent, this theme of hope. I love what Peter says here. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, but you believe in him, you can greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. See, Advent ultimately is a time of hope. It's a time of waiting. It's a time of recognizing that we live in this space between the first Advent and the second Advent. We live in this time of waiting of groaning along with creation for the ultimate redemption that one day Jesus will bring. But we have hope because we know, once again, how this story is gonna end. Even when we suffer, even through trials. Over the last six months, I've heard many stories of people here in this room. Stories of highs and stories of lows, stories of cancer and sickness, stories of job loss, stories of celebration, birth of new children, stories of marital problems, of hardships with children, 
All of us know the highs and the lows of life. But what sustains us, what keeps us going, is the hope that we see in this passage. That we know no matter what trials enter into our life, we know how our story ultimately ends. And a major application of this passage is that we learn to maintain our hope when we enter into those dark times. Because from Genesis chapter 3, God began this story of redeeming what we have broken. I've often said that this world is not what it's supposed to be. But praise be to God, this world is not ultimately what it will be. And that's our hope. This world is not what it's supposed to be. We have broken it. It is our fault. We're constantly sinning and falling short of the glory of God. We're sinning against ourselves. We sin against one another. Again, open the news and you see that day in and day out. But we're ultimately comforted by the fact, praise be to God, that this world is not what it ultimately will be. And we can know that based on the promises of God, the past promises of God, which we see as we take a look at number three on your outline. Look with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Peter says this. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, Peter's audience. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then I love this last phrase, things into which angels long to look. Here Peter is really laying out um, this idea that we are living again in this space between. He's highlighting on the one hand how uh, the prophets of old, throughout the Old Testament, they prophesied and gave these promises of the coming Messiah and the redemption that he would one day bring. And many of those prophecies we know have been fulfilled at the first advent of Jesus when he took on human flesh and died in our place on the cross. But many of the promises of God are yet unfulfilled. And again, Advent is a time when we look forward with hope to the day when the rest of God's promises will be fulfilled. When one day... That one born as a, as a baby in a manger will return as king of kings and lord of lords to rule and reign over this earth. And for thousands of years, the prophets of old look forward with faith, with that hope that one day God would bring our redeemer, their redeemer. Peter really builds this argument based on the past promises of God, the word of God. I'm reminded of one of my professors at DTS, Jim Allman, some of you probably had Jim Allman, he would say over and over again that God, um, what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise of what he'll do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. I love that. What God has done in the past is both a model and a promise of what he'll do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. In other words, as we look uh, with faith into the history and we see these prophecies of old that have been fulfilled, it gives us a sure confidence that what God has said about the future will also come to pass, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. 
If I can kind of summarize it all here, what Peter is saying in this chapter is that because of God's promises in the past, we know how the story ends. And this gives us a future hope. And that future hope empowers us to endure through the present trials of this life. To bring it together in terms of kind of an application, I want to read for you verse 13. What do we do with this passage? So what? Peter says there in verse 13, Therefore, in light of everything he has said, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And then notice this, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation or advent of Jesus Christ. While we wait in this space between, this liminal state between the first advent and the second advent, we hope. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at that second revelation of Jesus Christ. I like what one commentator says here. He says, preparing your mind for action and setting your hope on that day happens through consciously forcing yourself not to dwell on your circumstances, not to look to money or politics or your personality to solve your problems. Instead, we're to focus our hope completely and totally on God's grace. The season of Advent is a way of preparing our minds for actions, of reminding ourselves that this season, what we're celebrating here, is the birth of our Redeemer and the hope that that brings for each and every day. Like I said earlier, years ago, I only began to see the beauty and the benefit of Advent. On the one hand, on the one hand Advent is a reminder to me of just how broken our world is. But on the other hand, Advent, like C.S. Lewis says, is that continual looking forward to the eternal world. It reminds us that one day Jesus is going to come and make all things new. That's our ultimate hope, the blessed hope of what we believe. So there in your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. But your one thing for this week is this. If you have time for only one, week, uh, one thing this week, because this is a busy time in everybody's life, what I'd ask for you to do is this. Ask yourself, what are ways in which you can be preparing your heart for the hope of Jesus' advent. Clearing out kind of the chaos of your life and preparing your heart for this hope that we're gonna celebrate for these next few weeks. And then secondly, how can you bring hope to someone else during this advent season? Because we live in a world where people are looking for hope. And if you want two very specific kind of takeaways, what I'd ask for you to do is out in the commons grab a handful of each of these cards. These are invitation cards um, to the lessons and carols and to the journey into Christmas. Because listen, each and every one of you, you have people in your life, it's family members, it's neighbors, it's coworkers who are looking for hope. And as much as it pains me to admit it, they're not gonna come to Grace Bible Church to hear the new young preacher. <laughs> but they might, amen, that's why I say amen. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It pains me a bit. It's true. Uh, but they might come to see lived out the greatest story ever told 
in the journey into Christmas. They might come to hear some beautiful music as we celebrate and rejoice together. And by the way, they will hear the gospel there as well. Because the truth is everybody likes a good story. We're a storytelling people. And what's better than a good story is a true story. And God has invited each and every one of us to participate in the greatest story ever told. And Peter will later say in his book that we're to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And that's my hope for us this Advent season. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that we have hope. That in a dark world, in a discouraging world, we have hope. Thank you that you've invited us as your ambassadors to share this message of hope with a dark and dying world. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would empower us and encourage us to do just that as, as we are entering into this season uh, when unbelievers in our life are naturally gonna be thinking about Christmas. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunities to share with them the true reason, the true hope that we all have. Uh, Father, thank you how you have ordained our days that for each and every one of us through the highs and lows of life, you're there. That you're good, that you're faithful, that you're loving. And help us to see that, help us to believe it. Fill us with hope this season. I ask for myself and for each one here. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.